Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, if we've got a bit of time, we'll have a look at a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips. We're also talking with Christina Sikiotis on our Minute of Innovation, but uh, she's got a, a guest with her today. So uh, we're going to be talking about disruptive industry. But right now, we're going to have a chat with Craig McGregor from the Hunter Recruitment Group about the changing face of employment in the Hunter. Good afternoon, Craig. G'day, Julian. How are you going? I'm very well. Once again, thank you for joining us. It's been a while hey, since no we've worries. had a chat. Was that the uh, the Turtles? I'm so it happy was, together on there. Yeah. Quite um, a good good song to about what we're talking about. I think people are feeling that in the marketplace. Although well, they're happy, happy or not together happy. in their employment, and then uh, unfortunately the rug's been pulled from underneath them. And that's, uh, we've seen a lot of that in the last couple of days, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, you know, what is happening? I mean, what, what, what's it, what effect is it having on the employment in the Hunter? Yeah, look, I think um, yeah, the big thing is the, the mining industry downturn that we're feeling the effects from, and it doesn't just affect the direct mines. You know, uh, the Newcastle Hunter market is full of suppliers and subsidiary industries that are feeling the downturn. So, you know, what I suppose is occurring is a, is a massive shift that hasn't occurred in our space for some time. You know, like the, the mining industry has always been a bit of a boom and bust industry. Uh, the issue for us locally is that it's been in boom for a protracted time for probably around about 15 years and that uh, that has then led us to this security level of, OK, these jobs might be here for a little while longer and everyone's earning capacity has gone up based on the, the boom of the mining industry and then as that declines, what's happening is we're getting a lot of that good quality labour coming back into the marketplace. So, yeah, the dynamics have really shifted in, in terms of basic economics of supply and demand. You know, your local Maitland um, you know, mechanics uh, business, he's probably struggled to find a mechanic for the last 10 yeah. years and has basically become a bit of a training ground. So that's probably been a place where young people have got their start. Um, well, he's got now this marketplace which is flooded full of people that can take away his pain and say, great, I'm, I'm a mechanic, I can come and work for, for you. And that mechanic's going, OK, I've got to reduce my wages, um, so I'll take a lower income. Mm. So that's one, one aspect of it. But the other aspect that I think we're seeing, particularly here in the Maitland space, is that young person's not getting a go. So yeah. our youth unemployment's going through the roof. So, okay. yeah, it's, it's having multiple effects. And, of course, there would be a lot more people applying for the jobs now. 100%. You know, we've had, um, depending on the market spaces, so, you know, take an engineer. You know, engineers have been extremely hard to find in the Newcastle and Hunter space for, for the last 10, 15 years because all the good good quality engineers and labour's gone up into the mining or mining-related industries. Now, if you're looking for an engineer, yeah, you're probably going to be interviewing 10 or you're going to be going through a process of, of applications with 30, 50 um, applicants, whereas, you know, 12 months ago, two years ago, that engineering firm probably went, all right, we'll take what we can get and we'll negotiate on price. So uh, the problem we had with the skills shortage a couple of years ago that we talked about is probably all gone now. Yeah, it has. It, it's, uh, there'd still be pockets where there'd be skill shortages, but mm. uh, for the majority, yeah, it's more a supply and demand is, has returned. Similar to real estate, you know, that supply and demand of who, who's got the power in terms of the buyer or the seller. Well, it's definitely the employer who has got more leverage than they had a couple of years ago in this space. Is it causing a lot of people to leave the area, do you think? Yeah, I think it would be, um, particularly those, you know, if you're looking at the mining-related people that are uh, leveraged up, they've bought a house, they've got a large mortgage, they thought that they were going to be on X amount of income for the next however many years and then they've been made redundant, well, 
their, their, their um, earning capacity in the local marketplace just isn't what it was, so they're relocating or they're doing fly-in, fly-out work to maintain that high level of income. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I presume it's going to be remain with us for quite a while now, looking at uh, what's recently happening. Yeah, I think so. And look, the, the dynamics are even like, you know, if you stereotype in the mining industry, if it's the, the engineer or the diesel fitter or the mechanic is a, is a, a gentleman and he's been made redundant and his wife may have been at home or working part-time because he's been on a, on a great income, well, he's now in the marketplace, but so is she looking for work. So, mm. you know, you look at that, that general administration space. If we advertise for a receptionist or general administration um, role at the moment, we'll get 300-plus applicants wow. within the first, you know, 48 hours. Um, so that's a, there's, there's a duopoly of, of um, problems there in terms of, you know, the employer is struggling to go through, how do I weed through 300 applicants? Mm. But the candidate's also going, I'm applying for 50 jobs and hearing nothing back. How am I ever going to get a job? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's a real frustration on both sides. Well, putting your other hat on now as president of the Maitland Chamber of Commerce, uh, yep. you've got a, an exciting project coming up. Yeah, we do. Look, we're we're having a, a bit of a forum. Uh, we're calling it the 2020 Forum. We've we've had some really good success partnering with um, the New South Wales Chamber and the Hunter Business Chamber to really advocate for some really key infrastructure projects and community-based projects over the last, say, five years. And I think we're at a point now where we need to go. Okay, what's next? What's what's the projects for 2020? What does Maitland need to get in our back door? And, and you know what, employment could be a really big one of them. Of how do we transition out of mining into a different um, employment space so that we can provide job opportunities opportunities for our people in this region. So what, as President, what I'm doing is I'm opening it up to, to not only our Chamber members, but I want to get engagement from, from Maitland Business and other Hunter businesses in an open forum where we can go, great, these are the, the discussion points that we need to have, these are the big issues, how can we then formulate a plan to attack you know, federal, state and local government on what action needs to occur. And Look, Julian, as a local businessman, we'd love to have you along to that oh, forum as well. I've already received your invitation in the email. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff, mate. Love for you to contribute. So the question then is, uh, when's it on and uh, how can we find details? Yeah, look, we're still... The, the, the date has been set, so it's October 21. It'll be an afternoon um, session and uh, we're still just teeing up the venue and once we get the venue um, sorted, uh, then we'll get started on, the, I suppose, the, the true marketing of the event. But for me, it's save a date, October 21, and make sure you want to think about what are those key opportunities and, uh, and, and events or um, projects that you'd like to see uh, the Chamber and the broader community engage with, with the uh, government to try and bring to our, our little part of the world. And I presume you'll be putting it up on your website, which is? Yeah, website most definitely at uh, maitlandbusiness.com.au. Okay, all right. Well, uh, shoot me another email and I will mention it closer to the time in October the 21st. Uh, That'd be great. It, or, or even it. get you back on, whichever whichever t pits out at that time. Sounds great. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time again, Craig. We'll have a no chat worries. with you Thank another you time. Again, Julian. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Craig McGregor there from the... Hunter Recruitment Group, looking at the changing face of employment in the Hunter, but also as president of the Maitland Chamber. An interesting event discussion coming up there on October the 21st. We'll come up with some more details later. We're listening to Business, the Law and You on 2NURFM 103.7. Time to pop over to Christina Sikiatis, who I believe is having a lot of fun with her friends too. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian, and I am having lots of fun today, especially. Um, yeah. And 
We've actually had a major, major example of disruption this morning. Yeah. Um, but I have, sitting next to me, uh, the major disruptor that I know of, actually, at the moment, um, Lisa Messenger from Renegade Collective. And I'm going to disrupt your radio program, I'm sorry, and put you onto Lisa. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay, here she comes. Good afternoon, Lisa. Hi, Julian. How are you? I'm very well. So, uh, disruptive industry. We've only got a few minutes to talk about it, but uh, um, how, how have you disruptive in industry? Well, right now I'm sitting in a workshop, which is quite disruptive, and we're alive on the radio in front of all these people, which is quite strange. Um, But I basically launched a print magazine two and a half years ago, and I had no background in magazines whatsoever. I had three staff under the age of 25, none of whom had worked for a magazine before, and uh, so I basically knew nothing about anything, had no money, and was entering an age-old industry where there were 5,500 competitors in an industry people were saying was either dead or dying. The print magazine is now in 37 countries, and we have over 18 different revenue streams. So it's going pretty well. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit like Richard Branson. He's uh, one of those sort of people that uh, goes in and changes all the industry's uh, ways of thinking, isn't it? So what well, I always th- love it when someone says you're a bit like Richard Branson. <laughs> so thank you. I would take that. So, and he's in the country at the moment too. <laughs> he is indeed. So, uh, what sort of things did you do that uh, turned the industry around a little bit? I think the thing is that um, people often overcomplicate business and it's much easier to do things that um, just sort of thinking from a gut level. So, I kind of went about it and I thought, well, I don't have the money or the, um, you know, the, the, smarts and the systems and processes and everything that the big boys have, but what I do have is the ability to tap into all sorts of different networks. So I looked for like-minded, non-competing brands that shared similar databases, and I thought, well, what can I offer them in exchange? I believe there's more than one currency than cash, and Mm. so I started to go to people and say, you know, I can do a story on you, can you amplify us up to your audience? And just started to think about things in a really different and kind of illogical and counter intuitive way. It's, uh, it's certainly good to, uh, to challenge the way things are done, isn't it? Absolutely. I think anything can be flipped on its head and I think sometimes age-old industries are the most extraordinary and exciting place for that to happen because people are so stuck in sort of the bureaucratic ways and as sort of entrepreneurs we can iterate, pivot, morph, change, we're flexible and nimble and I always say it's not the big that eat the small, but it's the fast that eat the slow. And I think it's something important to remember. Did you find a lot of people challenging you saying you can't do that? Yeah, continuously. I think um, you've got to be very careful who you surround yourself with because there's a lot of naysayers and people have, you know, their own their own perceptions or their own stuff going on. So I think it's important just to keep, you know, pushing forward, asking the question and just, you know, shaking things up as you go. Yes, and uh, certainly... Uh, as you say, anyone in business, I think these days are often surrounded by naysayers. And uh, you did say you were you surrounded yourself with like-minded people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that's the important thing. You know, find people that are going to lift you higher, and you know, find a good balance of yes people, but also you know, there, it's good to have some no people around you. You know, as an entrepreneur, I think we're kind of crazy and unwieldy sometimes, and it's good to have some people who can say um, perhaps not, that's not the best idea at the time. But it's about finding that healthy balance. So it's interesting you say that it has a balance because a lot of people say, well, don't don't have a lot of yes people around you, but it's good to have a few few supporting you, isn't it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think so. Um, you know, the crazier the ideas get, it's, it's good to have people in your camp. 
And particularly as an entrepreneur, you know, we're not known for detail or actually following through on things or implementing. So it's really important to have people that are there to actually kind of, you know, chase you around and actually make things happen. And you obviously had a strong team, even though they weren't, uh, well, obviously they weren't uh, well experienced in the industry, but they, they probably learned and found ways of doing it. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you can passion Trump's experience in my book every mm. single time. Mm. I think, you know, if someone's extraordinarily passionate and loyal and they've got a hunger, I think a lot of skills can be taught. And so, you know, that's, I will hire on that every single time and, you know, very much prove that with a team under the age of 25 who had no experience, but a deep fire burning within them. And... Uh, Christina tells me you're able to talk for hours, but we've only got a few minutes today. But uh, maybe we'll have a chat with you a bit longer another time on the radio. That sounds good. Yeah. And just uh, let right. Chris- Christina know we'll we'll talk to her again next week. Yep, fantastic. Thanks. Okay. Thanks very much, Thanks Lisa. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Lisa Messenger there with uh, some ideas, yes, about disrupting the industry. And uh, certainly, uh, as I mentioned, Richard Branson was a good advocate of that way back and if he's listening I know he's in the country but well done and it's 28 minutes to two we do have time for a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips the first one I thought was an interesting one a simple chart is a persuasive chart the most anti-persuasive thing you can do is make a bad chart that frustrates people your credibility suffers if people can't make sense of your visual so you want to avoid a couple of pitfalls firstly beware of complexity If there's too much information and no clear salient point that people can intuit, they tend to shut down unless they have time to find your narrative. Too many salient points fighting uh, for attention is often the result of poor design. So when trying to make a persuasive chart, keep in mind, if everything is bold, nothing is. Next, be wary of unusual chart treatments. People often struggle with visuals that flout convention. For example, if you depict time going right to left or put values out of order, like very likely, not likely, somewhat likely, unlikely, somewhat likely, any time people's expectations are messed with, it requires cognitive gymnastics to get things straight. If it's too much of an effort, they'll give up. So interesting point there. And what about the feedback you need. We all need feedback to learn and grow, but if you're waiting for your annual review to find out how you're performing, you're not getting enough of it. How do you make sure you get the right input you need, especially if your boss is stingy with advice? First, make sure your boss knows what kind of feedback you want. Do you need appreciation or acknowledgement, evaluation or general coaching? Next, ask for feedback in real time. If you want insight into your performance on a project, ask for it sooner rather than later. Use specific questions that won't result in yes or no answers, such as, what's one thing I could improve? And press your manager for examples. A label like, you need to be more assertive, is not very helpful. Unpack the label by asking, what kind of things should I do to be more assertive going forward? There's some interesting points there from the employee point of view, but also from the uh, management point of view. Are we giving good feedback? Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've had a quick look at the changing face of employment in The Hunter with Craig McGregor and also 
um, Lisa Messenger, who disrupted the printing industry. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we'll visit the world of insurance with Markey Insurance, have a minute on innovation with Christina, and some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for Business, the Law and You at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week, and as Leo Tolstoy once said, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself.